0: I would say in my experience uh, preaching and being a part of the church, uh, this 1 Timothy preaching opportunity and and the study that we're doing has probably had more relevance in a practical way and more of a battle than any of the passages I've ever been a part of in teaching. Um, I think because it's so practical and because as we look at it and we look at the setting in which it takes place there is a spiritual war going on a battle for the existence of truth for the proclamation of truth for the existence of that church and perhaps we we see that because this is what we're going through and what the church in this country is going through in the face of where our nation is heading and we see so much compromise and we see uh, this movement going here and this movement going there and this seeming to be successful and this growing. And we want to stay close to this because this is the one thing that never changes. I probably had three discussions this week about, with different people about the fact that what do we know is true? we can see media constantly giving us this picture, this picture, whether it's conservative or liberal or uh, from this culture to that culture and you walk away and think, I wonder if that was true. Because that's the age in which we live. But praise God, we have something that is true. We have the scriptures that lead us, that give us an anchor that others don't have. And at the end of the scripture this morning, you'll see another advantage that we have We are the most blessed of people and we are the most undeserving of people. But we have been taken by the King of creation and made sons and daughters of His. At the great cost of purchasing us out of sin, pulling us out of of what we wallowed in and enjoyed and, and were a part of it, He took us out of that with the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ. We we are the most rich people that could be imagined. And our future lays before us an eternity. But in the meantime, we have a task. And I pray that God will teach us, as we go through these scriptures, more and more about that task, who He is, that we will serve Him with no hesitation, with complete abandon, until He returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the scriptures this morning your word says they are living and they are powerful and father we know that it, this word changes lives it changes all things father and we pray that you would give us understanding lord please work in spite of my weaknesses and the weaknesses of those who are hearing this this morning we are mortal lord we are dull We need you to give us insight and understanding and knowledge and wisdom. Please speak to us and change us so that our lives bring you greater glory. Not just so that things go better within our family or within our own personal life. Perhaps it will even be more difficult, but so that the King of kings and the Lord of lords will be glorified in these brief lives that you have given to us. Oh, you are worthy, O King. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning we're looking at leaving Christ. The deceptions that surround that. Leaving faith. We have a warning here in verse 1. It begins with now or but. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. That statement alone Brings fear, brings caution, brings concern. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. The opening word there, now or, or but, whichever your translation, it alerts us to this is a great contrast. We have just read, if you will flip into the chapter just before 1 Timothy 4 to verses chapter 3, 16. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is praised in six beautiful phrases at the end of chapter 3. Let me read that. And without controversy, that means nobody who knows this doubts it. It is absolutely agreed upon. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. And received up in glory. This speaks of Jesus Christ. It's astounding when you look at each piece of that. And yet it's mysterious. It's mysterious. The omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator God. Surpasses anyone's. Ability in any way to fully actually comprehend who he is. And yet he is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He said I am truth. He says now. Now writes Paul. You will see an opposition in these scriptures. It's an enemy. And he is characterized by deceptions. We will see their origins. We will see the perpetrators of these deceptions. We will see their intentions and there will be two specific lies at the very end that are very, very revealing. The opening statement here is set with great authority. It could not have greater authority. In fact, it is the greatest. The authority here is the Holy Spirit. Paul bases this written statement on the very highest authority, the Holy Spirit of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaks here. The Spirit expressly says, that means His communication is made with no uncertain terms. It's with undeniable clarity what the Spirit is saying here. And it's also given in the present tense. The Spirit of God is saying, not simply has said in the past, but the Spirit continues to say. He continues on even into the future, even to this very day. The Spirit is speaking, and it gives us an idea of when He's speaking about here. It says in latter times. Now does this mean it is not actually happening yet, nor is happening at the present, but, but will occur in the future? No. No. Latter times is really a simple statement. It means the span of time which began with the arrival of Jesus on earth as a mortal man. The incarnation. When Jesus arrived on earth began the latter times. And it will end at his second coming in return to the earth in judgment. These latter times have spanned over 2,000 years. They continue up through October sixteenth, two 2022. And they will end... They will end. They will end precisely. They will end precisely when God has predetermined his son will return. As Hebrews says, apart from sin for salvation. George Knight defines latter times as saying, The days inaugurated by the Messiah and characterized by the Spirit's presence and power. The days to be consummated by the return of Christ. These last or latter days are mentioned often in scripture. We look in Acts chapter 2 verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days says God. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. God who at various times and in various ways. Spoke in times past to the prophets. Has in these last days. In these last days. He has spoken to us. By his son. First Peter 1.20. He indeed was foreordained. We're speaking about Jesus. The Messiah. The Savior. He was foreordained. Before the foundation of the world. There was all in place. It would happen. But he is manifest. In these last times. For you. First John 2. Verse 18. Little children. It is the last hour writes John these are the latter times we are in the midst of them so if someone asks you the proverbial end times question do you think we are living in the end times or better yet someone says to you I'm convinced that we are living in these last days you can look them straight in the eye and you can say no doubt my friend that is absolutely true although he may mean something quite different than what you had just admitted, you know that you are biblically on point and correct. We are in the last days in these latter times. And it says there that the Spirit of God sounds a warning about these latter days that some will depart. We are assured of this. This this is hard to hear sometimes. We are assured that some will depart. What will happen? It's the word aphistemi. And it is related to the Greek verb which we get the word "apostatize" from. It means to depart. To move away. Now this word can mean a physical geographic move from one location to another. But spiritually departing describes a person who had once been involved in Christian activities. He had associated with Christian people. He gave the impression of fully believing in Christ. But turned their back and left faith in Jesus. A commentator by the name of Bowder defines departing as. The serious situation of becoming separated from the living God. After a previous turning towards him. By following away, falling away from the faith. The New Testament tells us of Judas Iscariot. And several more that we'll look at here. Paul has already written of Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy. But apostasy, or departing from faith, is not a remote ancient tragedy. We have seen very famous Christian leaders and Christian celebrities do a spiritual 180 and turn their back on the Christ of the Bible. And they leave many in a wake of disillusionment. How could that be? Nor, nor is this simply a good guy, bad guy scenario. With heavy broken hearts, many of us have also watched close friends or even dear family members take this same route. These have abandoned Christ and settled into the world or other idolatrous, idolatrous religions to their destruction this is a real heartache many have felt firsthand. Paul cautioned the Ephesian elders quite some time before he wrote this letter to Timothy there in Ephesus but he told those elders in Acts chapter 20 for I know this that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock also from among yourselves men will rise up Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. That was, not only will they rise up, men who you trusted and looked to in leadership, but they will rise up and they will try to draw others away to themselves. Therefore, goes, goes on Paul, watch and remember That for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day with tears. That shows gravity to me. Paul says and warns, I was there for three years, pouring my life into them. But I tell you, some will depart. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, exhorts, John describes a spiritual war zone. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. The departing. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest. That none of them were of us. Then the lie in verse 22. Who is a liar? But he who... For who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So these in 1 John departed, and they carried with them this lie that Jesus is not the Christ. And then we have the danger, he goes on to say, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Not only will be there, there be those who leave and lie about Christ, but some will even try to convince God's people into departing with them. Meanwhile, all these same wiles of Satan have invaded and waged war on Timothy. That's why we see this letter this morning. And they are trying to draw people away from the church of God in the city of Ephesus. But the more personal question Paul raises in this statement is who? He says some. Some. Not all, but some. Not necessarily those from a seedy background or a God-fearing home. But some. Not necessarily those from churches with worldly strategies or poor teaching, or those from strong scripture centered churches, but some. Not all from contemporary seeker sensitive churches, or traditional conservative churches, but some. Not all from dispensational churches. Or from confessional churches. But some. Some will. Turn to Jesus' story with me. In Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a story about a farmer. One who went out to plant. Matthew 13 verse 4. Verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them. In parables saying. Behold a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth but when the sun was up they were scorched and because they had no root they withered away and some fell among the thorns and the thorns sprang up and choked them But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus also told Nicodemus, Nicodemus is erudite religious leader of his time. When he had secretly snuck in to meet with Jesus in the dark of night. Jesus told him the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. While we do not know those whom the Lord has chosen to be His own and who will endure to the end, we also do not know who will, not who may, but who will at some point cash it in and say, that's really not me anymore. I'm leaving this Bible Christ than this Bible Christianity. Paul finished up a letter he was writing. Think of this. Paul finished up this letter he was writing to a church in Colossae with these words of loving farewell. Colossians 4 verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, And those who are in Laodicea. And those in Hierapolis. Luke the beloved physician. And Demas greet you. Little did Paul realize. As he finished that letter. That he would soon close. His second letter to Timothy. With these words. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica Crescens for Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia only Luke is with me get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry in this valediction Paul reveals two big surprises the first Demas has apostatized He has departed. He left Christ for this present world. Paul had no idea. I don't believe that that was going to happen. But praise God, there is a second surprise Mark. John Mark, in fact, whom Paul had refused to bring on an earlier missionary journey because Mark had deserted him and Barnabas at Perga. Now, this deserter unexpectedly has become profitable. He is the useful one. And Paul says, send him. Send him for the ministry of Christ. Go figure. Some will depart, and some will rise up. Lest, lest you or I think this some who depart from faith must be a, our wild second cousin or our raucous neighbor or... or Maybe you glance down the row in the church building or suppose it could be my struggling brother or sister or my parent or or my child. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God it could be you this my friends is a very dire warning to the church of Hebrews possibly in Rome and now Paul sounds the alarm on an explosive spiritual battleground where there are real eternal injuries and casualties to the church in Ephesus that combat zone exists in Wichita, Kansas it exists on West 13th Street and here's what you see in the life of those who have departed. They listen to lies. They are giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Giving heed uh, may be translated as paying attention to, but it's far more effective than that. Uh, it means to cling to, to devote to. This goes way past simply listening into something. When you give heed, you buy in. You invest yourself. In fact, what you are now listening to when you give heed will determine the way you will live. Again, back to that first word in verse 1. Now the Spirit of God. Now the Spirit of God sets in opposition with the deceiving spirits, the doctrines of demons. Contrary to how we usually pray and conduct our lives, There are deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons everywhere. And they are a real danger. And I do not intend to to suggest that behind every every pew or chair or bush or car that, that there's a demon there. But I would say there's a lot more than we ever realize. And these scriptures give us some understanding of that. Deceiving spirits... 2 John verse 1 verse 7 or chapter 1 verse 7 For many deceivers have gone out into the world many who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh this is a deceiver and an antichrist One writer said the holy spirit leads people into saving truth while these un- unholy spirits lead them into damning error There is a pull. This is not a neutrality that we live within. There are doctrines of demons, it goes on to say. And these are not teachings about demons, but teachings originating from demons. The demon-devised doctrines or teachings work in every way possible to masquerade, to masquerade as thoughtful intentions. Practical advice. Oh, attractive ideas. Pleasurable practices. And even spiritual counsel. The devil and his demons design their teaching to be plausible, even reasonable. Much like the bait on the end of the fishing hook that looks, smells, and feels very enticing to the fish admiring it. But like the delicious looking bait, it has a pointed and pronged hook inside that will drag men and women, young and old, rich and poor, well healed and from the south side to their destruction. Jesus said the thief thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. He is not passive. These demonic doctrines may even seem spiritual. But we will see in the two examples Paul gives. They are in opposition to God's word. The artillery of our enemies is exposed in this quote. It seems so appropriate for these days. Apostates are not actually the victims of sophisticated university professors, false religious leaders, or wickedly clever writers or speakers. They are the victims of demonic spirits purveying lies from the depths of hell through such humans. Let me read that again. Apostates are not actually the victims of sophisticated university professors, false religious leaders, or wickedly clever writers or speakers. They are the victims of demonic spirits, purveying lies from the depths of hell through such humans. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly sensual demonic wrote James now Paul gets serious and to the point in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 he says and he says this these are so far from most of our minds when we get up and we head off to work or we fix breakfast but he says this put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to take Stand against the wiles of the devil. Are there wiles of the devil? Obviously there are. Or this wouldn't have been written to us. And there takes the putting on of armor to be able to withstand it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places are you a match for that no you are not I am not we must pursue this spiritual armor this this warning that is being given to us I I know many of you have felt this I have felt this Pain deeply where friends, family have departed. And I'm seeing it differently. Yeah, it might have been through this person or that person or this the, the exposure to this. But all of that was originated by the doctrines of demons. The demons craftily trying to draw men and women away from the glory of God. Second Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5, it says. For though we walk in the flesh we do not war according or yeah we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal they're not fleshly but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ that's where we need to be Every thought into the obedience of Christ through the word of God, through much prayer. We must be on guard. We must be armored up. And we must take notice of this truth. In his book, The Invisible War, Donald Gray Barnhouse quotes Charles Baudelaire saying this, The devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist. The devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist. These who deceive in these scriptures and those who depart, first of all, listen to lies and they live a lie. Verse 2 says... They are speaking lies and hypocrisy. Having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. About these lying teachers, John writes, You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8, 44. The word hypocrite is used. They speak lies in hypocrisy. Hypoc- hypocrite comes from a Greek word associated with ancient theater. It means to take on a role or to play a part. Like their evil father, Satan, they disguise themselves as angels, not of darkness. We see all this hideous stuff at this time of year and unfortunately your children are exposed to it we're exposed to it stores and things like that and if that were the devil it would be really easy to recognize wouldn't it but the devil that we're talking about does not come with signs that here I am in evil yes that stuff is wicked yes that leads many down a destructive path but the devil we're talking about here is much more crafty Paul's use of the word hypocrite tells us something that these liars are often difficult to detect. They are camouflaged to fit into their surroundings like a deer hunter in his tree stand waiting for the unsuspecting victim. Hypocrite liars, they may be hard to recognize early on, but they are not to be ignored or taken lightly. They're teaching causes debilitating, even deadly spiritual disease. Paul describes it this way, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this part, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13. For such are false prophets. Deceitful workers. Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Is that camouflaged? Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Then no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing. If his ministers also transform themselves. Into ministers of righteousness. Whose end will be according to their works. End quote. The lying hypocrites continue in such evil teaching. Look what happens. They destroy the faith of many. And they have no conscience. It has been seared. It's a word here, kauteriazo. It's where the English medical term katerize comes from. It's defined as to destroy tissue using a hot or cold instrument. An electrical current or a chemical that burns or dissolves the tissue. That is the state of the heart of those who depart, of those who listen to and live lies. Webster gives a one-word meaning to it. It means to deaden. The nerves and blood flow no longer function so that there is no feeling. There is no life in that tissue. That is the reality of the heart of a hypocritical liar. Over a period of time, they have no hesitation to lie further. The devastating demonic effect of their lives brings no remorse. It just doesn't matter. They are past feeling and they are past caring. But take notice of the specific lies that they spread in Ephesus. Now consider this. If you were trying to think of how Satan would strike against Christianity You might imagine that he would attack the deity of Christ. Or maybe the sovereignty of God or or the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But no, not at all. Not in Ephesus. These hypocritical liars of Ephesus plant their flag on two very common and seemingly secondary spiritual hills. What these representatives of Satan teach... Is that in order to be spiritual. We must ban the pleasures of marriage. And of eating. One teacher shares. The deception comes in seeing those as essential elements of salvation. The devising of human means of salvation. Is a hallmark of false religion. And it goes to varying degrees. Some of those who who do all sorts of things. That that are detestable. And that, that bring Pain and, and suffering and, and denial to their, themselves physically. And then there are some that take scriptures. And use them out of place. And, and use them as, as demands. Skirting away from the glorious grace that comes in Jesus Christ. They are legalizing righteousness. And one word primarily. Abstain. Abstain. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. They rely on two religious errors here. And be on guard for these. Asceticism. Hendrickson describes it this way. The renunciation of the comforts of life. With a view to attaining happiness and perfection. It's almost like the worse you can feel the better you are spiritually. And then Gnosticism. And although this isn't full blown Gnosticism that really doesn't come into play I I think until 2nd, 3rd century Gnosticism is beginning here it is the elevation of Gnosis says Hendrickson that is knowledge to a position of prominence above faith all Gnostics favored the abuse of the flesh the good God could not have created the world for the world is matter and matter is the seed of evil Now it's interesting here. Gnostics handled the fact that they lived in the world of material reality that according to their belief must be evil. They handled it in two diametrically opposed methods. They either would abstain from any pleasure or enjoyment in the physical world or at the complete opposite end they would overcome physical pleasure by complete indulgence in it without any restraint complete abstinence or unlimited indulgence although Gnosticism was not fully in vogue at that time its roots had already begun to form and penetrate into the spiritual soul of the young church now these two abstinences are actually to be seen in a completely opposite light according to Paul and this is beautiful we really rock it over to a completely different perspective now of these verses and this is beautiful living by faith in Christ the truth first we talked of those departing from the faith of Christ the deception and now those living by faith in Christ the truth the response by faith and notice three things here verse 3 it says in the second part of that these things marriage and food which are created by God these are from God. These are from God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18 through 24. Genesis 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper com- comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air And brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said. Wow. This is now bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. And be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Talk about blessing. The purpose. The richness The glory and what God has done there. Then turn over to Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. Let's start with verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Where does the food come from? It comes from God. And as one preacher had said, I was listening to last night, in fact. He said... God could have just made porridge and that could have been all we ever ate and it could have been nutritious enough for us. But he didn't do that. He gave us a great, beautiful diversity. And speaking of diversity, we have a diversity in here of meals. And and I just love Indian food, Mexican food, steak, burgers. These are given to us by God. They are given to us in his richness. But this is a sly ploy carried out by a very crafty enemy in this passage. Yes, no doubt, singleness can allow a man or woman to apply themselves in ministry for Christ with less distraction. Paul even says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. 1 Corinthians 7, eight. And as far as food goes, Paul writes that When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. But if anyone believes that abstaining from either marriage or food elevates you spiritually and that living in a godly marriage or enjoying the blessings of a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner is sin, they have truly not known the one who created these things. Calvin charges that the hypocritical liars in Ephesus are trying to acquire righteousness for themselves by abstaining from those things which God has left free. The only reason why consciences are burdened by such laws is that perfection is being sought apart from the law of God. They are seeking to establish their own righteousness. We see that in Romans chapter 11. We see that all over. We often as men and and it was shared even last night on the street every religion essentially tries to establish its own righteousness men have to work they have to sacrifice they have to abstain they have to go through pain to establish a righteousness before God somehow but God endured the pain for us he is the one who suffered while men worked so hard to come to God if you trust in Christ, God has done the work to bring us to Him. And then in these gifts, marriage and food are from our good God. And secondly, these are gifts. Undeserved. They are gifts. Verse 3 says, to be received with thanksgiving. Now when we receive an actual gift, not a payment, not some sort of expected compensation, but something we did not earn or by any means even deserve. It is a gift. And our appropriate response to the giver is quite simple. Thank you. Thank you. Now foremost in any list of gifts is in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. And Romans three twenty three, And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. These are eternal. We, we should spend eternity and, and likely will in praise and adoration and thanksgiving. That God has taken me out of the sins that I was bound to. It was filthy, it was disgusting, it was wicked. And he has pulled me out of that and set me free forever. Ah, I owe him everything. These eternal undeserved gifts are worthy of constant thanksgiving to our great Father God. But Paul tells us the same is true. The same is true for the temporary and earthly gifts of marriage and food. Receive them with thanksgiving, rejoicing in the giver. Philippians 4 verse 6 says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God but do this with thanksgiving 1st Thessalonians 5 8 in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you that is a, a tremendous verse to master in everything give thanks In the worst of times, give thanks for God has many things that He is doing in the midst of it. Everything, give thanks. But thirdly, these gifts, they are gifts, they are from God, and they are to believers. They are to us, by those who believe and know the truth. Unbelievers, unbelievers enjoy marriage, Unbelievers enjoy a delicious steak dinner. But they are unknowingly very limited. They only enjoy them for the momentary pleasure they receive. If believing that the enjoyment of marriage and food. Is because of personal success. Or power. Or wealth. Or wisdom. Or talent. They're even further handicapped. But believers. Believers who know the truth. Who know Jesus Christ. Enjoy the pleasure of marriage. And food. On the same physical level. Yes. We enjoy that. But on a much much higher plane. Believers should know marriage and food are given to them as precious gifts. These are given by the eternal father. Who loves them and showers them with blessing. They are given For the glory of the giver. Unbelievers will never know this. Insight from one commentator reads. Unbelievers while they enjoy marriage and food. Do not fulfill that ultimate intention. And praise God for them. So in the truest sense. God made marriage and food. For those who believe and know the truth. Because they are the ones who will glorify him. For such gracious goodness. How foolish to abstain from his kindness and thus deny God the right to be glorified for their enjoyment. Quote. Then we come to the reason for this response. First of all in verse 4 is the nature of God's creation. For every creature of God is good. The nature of his creation is good. Secondly, the receiving of God's creation. There is a true prohibition here. It says, and nothing is to be refused. But refused literally means to be thrown away. God's gifts are not to be discarded. They're not to be wasted. They are not to be refused. They are to be received with a condition that is actually repeated. They are to be received with thanksgiving. And then we have the reality of this truth in verse 5. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Sanctified means simply to be set apart for godliness. Set apart for the glory of God. How are these things set apart for God's glory? Marriage and food? By the word of God and by prayer. By the word of God. The word of God that we recognize in verse 4 tells us that every creation of God is good. Genesis 1 verse 4 says in the beginning of creation of the universe excuse me in Genesis 1 4 through 31 it is the beginning of creation of the universe God created and he has assessed his work each 24 hour day and what does he say it is good at the end of every day he says it is good and then on the end of the sixth day God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good James 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What, what I, I think most of you understand this concept, that marriage is good, that food is good. But you may be tempted, you may be pushed, you may be hear things that would say, no, deny yourself, pull no, you should not enjoy those things. Some people... Uh, live that way. Guilty of the pleasures that God has given them. But Paul says that by understanding and evaluating everything that God has given according to His Word, marriage, its pleasure and blessing, food, its delight and nourishment, these things are set apart for the glory of God. These are for His goodness. These are good because God has written to us that they are. Charles Spurgeon said, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed we can rest upon what God says these are good and they are sanctified not only by the word of God but by prayer the word of God is God speaking to us prayer is our expression to God what is in our heart and our mind God has told you and me in his word that everything he has created is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe in him By the same truth, everything he has created is good if we receive it with thanksgiving. Prayer for our food. Prayer for our marriage. Prayer for our children. Prayer for our church. Our home. Our apartment. We've heard many of these things this morning. Whether it's a a half million dollar house or it's a tent in a refugee camp. We give thanks. They're sanctified. By prayer and the Word of God. Difficulties, trials, jobs, our heartbeat, our breath, everything. Sunrises. My wife and I yesterday walked across an area where there was a large uh, field of grass about this tall in gold and red, and the sun was on that and just glowed. These are blessings from God, the things we see. And we need to take pleasure in those. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so I'm urging you and exhorting you to be thankful. But I will warn you if you're not. There is a word of strong warning in Romans regarding this attitude of thanksgiving. Not giving thanks in prayer is part of the great rebellion mentioned in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Let me read that. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even His eternal power in Godhead, so that men are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Be thankful. Don't just be thankful when you feel like it or when you feel spiritual. Realize that there's a warning if you're not thankful. And there's great blessings when you are. Understand, discern, decide, perceive all of life in view of the word of God giving thanks to him in prayer without ceasing. So in conclusion, I want to urge you. Enter the fray. Jesus taught his disciples to pray concerning the devil. Matthew 6. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Uh, Rarely do I I think about that in that prayer. But it's essential. Secondly, we know Christ has won the victory over the devil. 1 John 4.4, you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have confidence in that victory. But then it says take confidence in how this victory was accomplished. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He, Jesus Himself, likewise shared in the same. He became flesh and blood as well. That through death He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For in that he himself has suffered, he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. So enter the fray. Know that the victory has been won. And thirdly, know that this was bought at a great price, but our God destroyed him who had the power of death. And then finally, Hebrews 3. I just want to look at 3 Quick bullet points. First of all, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Beware. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Beware of an evil heart and what it can do. And then it, it says to exhort daily, verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin there it is again that that caution you can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin we must exhort each other daily and then fourthly hold steadfast with confidence verse 14 for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end hold fast do not let go Ephesians 6 verse 17 and 18 admonishes us to Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take it. Don't leave it on the nightstand day after day. Take the sword of the Spirit and take it with you. Memorize this so that you have use of it, full use of it when you're in these circumstances, when the enemy comes. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with prayer and and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I know it was for me, I hope it was for my brother and sisters here. Very sobering to look at what was going on in Ephesus and to see that laid over right here in our own city in my own life and in churches and people I know Lord your word is living and powerful and I pray that you would teach us from it you would empower us you would strengthen us you would lift us when we're down when we're discouraged and Lord when we're haughty and when we're mindless and apathetic that you would rebuke us and bring us near that we would bring glory to your name and Father I do pray that gift that we talked about in Ephesians 2 of eternal life by grace through faith in you would become the life of those who are lost here this morning. Some have heard this and, and that it makes no sense. They have no idea who you are. They know about you. Lord, I pray that they would drop, drop the the defenses, drop the hesitations, drop the the lies and the excuses and the things that lead to destruction if they would come and follow Jesus Christ and know eternal life, know true life and know you as their Father. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you are so good to us. And Father, I ask that you would guard our hearts. I don't want any of us to depart. Lord, please watch over us and hold us fast. In your name we pray, amen.